you for tuning in to episode 93 of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from pornography addiction or compulsive sexual behavior. If you or anyone that you know is struggling with pornography addiction, please point them to pathbackrecovery.com. You can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com. You can also find that link off of tonyoverbay.com. And please stop by there. Sign up in the middle of the page. There's something there that says, do you want to learn how to be happy? So uh, an upcoming release of a program that is is coming soon. Um, So sign up there. I will not spam you. I will not sell your email address. As a matter of fact, at this point, you may not even get many emails. Uh, that's something I got to work on. And uh, But I'm so grateful to be coming to you from uh, a very, very early morning re- recording. And um, I've got a two-part episode today, and I promise that it will not go too long because I didn't even print up the second half of my notes because I have so much good stuff to get to. If you already read in the title, we're talking about empathy today. And uh, empathy, what is it? It is a buzzword, a hot topic. And in my work, I am asked time and time again in emails and sessions and honestly by people I meet who have listened to a podcast or two or when someone finds out what I do for a living, they, the, the, the topic is so hot right now that the, uh, the question is often, can you teach empathy or how can my spouse or my child or my teen learn to be more empathetic? So let me just be bold. Whether I'm working with a teenager or an adult, I see this in all areas um, it's kind of this, it's phrased to me like this, can't you just help them understand why I need them to do this thing or why I need them to change? And, and again, here's a very bold, overarching, generalized statement. So I know that there are exceptions, but for the most part, parents, spouses, teachers, what, what I hear them all saying in essence is, can you help me tell that person, the person in my life, that they need to do what I say because I know better than them? So here's the deal. You might, you might not. In my humble opinion, maybe it's somewhere in between because the one thing that is lacking in true empathy or understanding, um, it it is truly, it's understanding what's going on in the mind of and the life of your spouse, your teen, your child. Um, And until you have a better idea and and until you can truly relate better to them, and it's more than just kind of putting yourself in their shoes, which we're going to get to today, but until you can truly relate to them better, understand where they're coming from and why, Convincing them to do what you want them to do is going to be an uphill battle, and it's not always the best thing. And what you don't even realize is that once you truly do understand where they're coming from, and trust me, if you just said in your mind, okay, but I do know what they need to do because I already know where they're coming from. I already know what they're going to say. You don't. Whenever those assumptions are made, and I hear that's one of the the common themes, whether I'm doing couples work, whether I'm doing individual work, it's just that, you know, I mean, I know he already knows that, you know, they'll say that. Or So whenever you're making an assumption, and I won't even go into the whole what happens if you're making an assumption and assume and all that kind of stuff, but if you're making an assumption, there is a lot of things there that you do not know. Okay, so back to today's podcast. And again, going to be a two-parter. Didn't even print the notes for the last thing I wanted to cover today because I know it will be long. So I want to go into teaching empathy, evidence-based tips for fostering empathy in children. And uh, the the article that I kind of pulled this from, and I'll link to this on the show notes, it's from parentingscience.com. It's uh, it's from a uh, Gwen Duar, PhD, and it is about teaching empathy. She says, it might sound strange if you think of empathy as an innate fixed trait, a talent that some people are born with and others lack. Because I think a lot of us do feel that way, of that either someone has empathy or they don't. But empathy is not an all or nothing proposition. 
It isn't something that unfolds automatically in every situation, and it, it isn't even a single ability or skill. And I am going to go into so much uh, data research here that uh, Gwen Dewar, um, so a lot of the, the things that I'm going to pull from are from this Parenting Science um, article, but she has it so well-researched, so well-noted. So um, I'm going to throw out some, uh, a lot of, when I, when I refer to a uh, study, if you don't mind, I'll just throw the last names out and then the year of the study. And if you go follow the links on the notes to this Parenting Science article, then she has all of these um, references there too. But so here's where I want to work from. Um, it's a Decidi and Cowell in 2014 argued that the word empathy has become a catch-all term for three distinct processes. And this is why I like this. Um, empathy, they have it boiled down to three things. One is emotional sharing, which occurs when we experience feelings of distress as a result of observing distress in another individual. So emotional sharing. So one component of empathy is, uh, you know, almost when you hear about the concept of someone being an empath, where they, they experience the feelings of distress by watching someone else um, experience distress as well. There's empathetic concern, which is the motivation to care for individuals who are vulnerable. Okay. So we've got empathetic concern. So it's like, I want to do something. I want, you know, that when people feel like I see people in need, I want to do something. There's feeling what they feel. There's feeling like I want to do something when I see someone who is feeling a certain way. And then here's the one that I think we typically think of when we think of empathy. It's perspective taking. The ability to consciously put oneself in the mind of another individual and imagine what that person is thinking or feeling. So I think we often think in terms of empathy, we forget those first two, the emotional sharing and the empathetic concern, and we just jump right to the perspective taking, the ability to consciously put oneself in the mind of another individual and imagine that that's what they are thinking. So when we speak about somebody being very empathetic, um, we're probably guilty, uh, as, as, uh, as Gwen Duar um, says, of mixing up all three of these. So... Uh, so, and some individuals are going to score high in all of these areas and others might uh, not really have any of these skills across the board. And we've talked about some of those in some of the, the, the Christina Hendricks episode on um, narcissism and personality disorders or the gaslighting. And uh, But it's common for people to experience a little bit of these three areas of empathy in varying degrees, and they can even change over time. For instance, um, uh, Gwendoire says that many young children show high levels of emotional sharing and they demonstrate strong but limited evidence of empathetic concern, but then they'll struggle with perspective taking. You know, it's hard to kind of, uh, my wife and I right now at our church volunteer in the nursery. And so it's hard to kind of show perspective taking um, to someone who is very small and tiny when uh, you're saying, hey, how do you think that made them feel when you took their toy? Um you know, that kid doesn't care. He's got the toy, right? So it's hard for him to kind of understand that perspective taking. Now, as, as kids get older, their perspective taking skills improve, but it's primarily when we provide with them with opportunities to practice. So they'll learn social norms about when and how to show empathetic concern. You know, they'll understand that when someone is, is suffering or someone is sad, you know, the social norms almost teach you how to show that empathetic concern of that, man, I feel bad because that person is feeling bad. Um, they also will learn about their own emotional responses. So, so these experiences can lead to enhanced empathy or the reverse. Children may learn to show more responsiveness in, in caring or less. So it really depends on the content of their lessons. Here's what, uh, where, where, um, Gwen said that, <laughs> Gwen, as if I know her, uh, Gwen Dewar. It's, she's a PhD. I want to call her Dr. Dewar. So Dr. Dewar said, were they taught empathy that, that empathy often requires an open mind and an effort to learn how differently others experience the world? Did they learn to shut out unpleasant feelings by retreating from people in distress? This is a big one. We're going to talk about this one here in a minute. Or did they learn how to control their personal reactions 
so they can respond with sympathy and help? Did they learn practical, concrete actions to take when someone is in trouble? So what do you do when you see someone who is suffering or someone who is sad? I mean, were they taught by a parent um, or a caretaker that, hey, hey uh, that, you know, don't look over there. That person's really sad. We just need to keep moving. Or were they learned, you know, were, did, were they just kind of learned to, hey, what do you think that person is going through? Or were they learned to even just, hey, go over and talk to the person, go give the person a hug, give the person a, a sandwich, whatever they were taught. Um, we start to see how that comes into play with teaching empathy. So did they learn practical, concrete actions to take when somebody's in trouble? Did they learn that empathy is to be reserved for a select few or for individuals from every walk of life, right? Is this one of those things of where if you're in a, a, a area that you're not um, very comfortable with and you see someone who is suffering or someone who is sad, or you learn that, hey, uh, we, you know, we don't really know everything that's going on here, so keep keep moving. So empathy isn't something that you either have or it's not something that you lack and isn't something that develops automatically without input from the environment. So she says there are different facets and degrees of empathy and the way we socialize our children matter. So I'm going to hit five out of these. She has 10 tips to teaching empathy. And again, there's some amazing studies that we're going to cover today. So she says teaching empathy tip number one, provide children with the support they need to develop strong self-regulation skills. What does that mean? Feeling someone else's pain is unpleasant. So it shouldn't surprise us if a child's first impulse is to shrink away. When they say when they see someone in pain, they're going to pull away. They're going to come to their caretaker. So children are more likely to overcome this impulse when they feel secure and have strong self-regulation skills. So for instance, when uh, children have a secure attachment, when they have these attachment relationships with their caregivers, they know they can count on their caregiver for emotional and physical support. And so then these children are more likely to sympathize and offer help to people in distress. So what does that look like? Um, when your child sees someone else who is suffering and they come to you, if you are there for them, if you put the, you know, if you give them the, hey, don't worry about it, don't, don't worry about that person, then what is that teaching them? That's kind of teaching them to not um, feel that emotional connection towards someone who is, is suffering or struggling. In addition, children who are better at regulating their negative emotions tend to show greater empathetic concern for others. That's from a study by uh, last name Song in 2017. So therefore, we can foster empathy by being what Dr. Uh, Duar says, emotion coaches. What that means is acknowledging rather than dismissing our child's negative feelings. And, and let me just jump up here and say that when, when I'm saying child in this situation, um, it can be your, your child, your teen. It can be your spouse. I mean, and this is that that no fixing and judgment statement. This is that more tell me more about what's going on for you kind of statement that I've covered in other podcasts. So not to dismiss negative feelings, engage in conversation about the causes and effects of emotions. It also means that helping kids find constructive ways to handle their bad moods, not any of the, hey, don't worry about that. That's not your problem. Because what does that say? That says, I, I see your emotion. I see your response. And I don't want to hear about it because it's not valid. Um, emotion coach. Remember that. You can be that. Uh, be there. Don't dismiss. Acknowledge the negative feelings and engage in conversation about the causes and effects of emotions. Tell me what's going on in your life, child, teen, spouse. So while emotion coaching, emotion coaching has helped kids of all ages, um, there's a uh, study by Johnson and et al. So that means Johnson and pals, 2017. It says younger children who struggle with negative emotions may benefit the most. In addition, there's evidence that young children develop better perspective taking skills when we talk to them about mental states like beliefs, desires, and goals. So if you have a toddler, it isn't too early to start thinking about your role as one of these emotion coaches. In one experiment, this is kind of this is where stuff gets really interesting. Uh, Loop and Roscom in 2016, parents were encouraged to increase their coaching efforts 
and when so, they produced immediate positive effects. Preschoolers showed improvements in their ability to handle frustration. So in that, in that scenario, um, they were encouraged to just talk more about what's going on with the child, even a toddler, um, not told to don't worry about it, hey, stop crying, or even just the, the good old distraction model. Um, no, they kind of doubled down on, hey, tell me what's going on there for you. What are you, what are you seeing? What are you feeling? What are you thinking? Okay, I love this second one. Teaching empathy tip number two, seize everyday opportunities to model and induce sympathetic feelings for other people. Um, if you observe someone in distress, real life, TV, a book, uh, Dr. Dwar says, talk to your child about how that person must feel, not even about what's going on for you, about how that person must feel. There's a study by Pizarro and Salovi in 2002 uh, that says every, even a very brief conversation can have an effect. For example, in an experiment on Dutch school children ages 8 to 13 years old, um, Jelly Sierskma and her colleagues presented kids with some hypothetical scenarios about school. Here's what they said. They said, it's your classmate's turn to stay late and clean up the classroom. But she wants to go home as soon as possible because her mother is quite ill. So she asks you, would you help her? So would you do it? Would you help her? In one scenario, the students were told to imagine that the girl was one of their friends. In another scenario, they were told the girl was not one of their friends. And that distinction mattered. Children expressed less willingness to help when the girl was not depicted as a friend. But here's where things got kind of interesting. The results changed when researchers added an extra step to the procedure. Instead of immediately asking children if they would help, the experimenters first asked them to think about the girl and rate how sad or upset she was likely to be. Again, in the scenario that she had to stay late to clean up, but she needed to, you know, in, in her core, she wanted to get home because her mom was quite ill. So even just to go over that information again, that extra step of how do you think the girl would rate her on how sad or upset she was likely to be? After rating emotions, then the children showed no bias in favor of the friend. They were equally likely to say they would help the girl, whether she was a friend or not. So that extra reminder was enough to change the children's judgments. So I think the significance there is that, you know, we're uh, normally or we're initially going to say, well, what's what's in it for me almost? Is that person my friend? Is that person not my friend? But then once we even take the time to just say, hey, rate that girl. How, how sad do you think that she is right now um, for what she's going through? And uh, and children, then when they recognize, man, I bet she's kind of sad. Um, then they're more likely to help. So in the grand scheme of things, what is that teaching? It's teaching someone to step back and kind of assess the situation and and a little bit of it's throwing out some of that perspective taking to see what must that be like, right? There's some emotional sharing there when uh, when they they see or experience the feelings of distress by observing distress in another individual. And then there's that empathetic concern, which is that motivation to care for somebody who is vulnerable in distress, and then finally that perspective taking. So in that study, you almost see um, instead of someone who has a little bit of uh, the emotional sharing, or they see that someone's going through a hard time, but they lack that that necessarily that empathetic concern or perspective taking. So teaching empathy tip number three, helping kids discover what they have in common with other people. I found this one fascinating too. Adults tend to feel greater empathy for an individual when they perceive the individual to be similar to them. Um, they also find it easier to empathize with someone who is familiar. So research suggests that children also have similar biases. And if you step back and think about this as an adult, a lot of times this is the thing where if you, if someone is uh, going through something hard at your work and your work tends to rally, it's like, you know, and I like to think in that term of community or tribe, someone in your church, someone in your work, someone in your neighborhood, um, when you feel that they are similar to them, you find it easier to empathize. So as a result, one of the best ways to encourage empathy is to make children conscious of what they have in common with others. 
And uh, this one goes into the the concept of getting out and meeting people from different backgrounds and learning about what life is like in different places. So conversations are helpful, but this is what is uh, this is what's fascinating. It's worth remembering that kids are heavily influenced, and this is uh, Dr. Dwar said by what we actually do unless by what we say. And how many times do we are we aware of that when someone is saying, "Here's what you need to do," but then you don't see them back that up, right? Um, a lot of us uh, tend to go with that word of a hypocrite. So, you know, it's more of, and, and as a parent, I think oftentimes we want to make sure that we're modeling that behavior that we want our kids to do. If we're saying you need to be kind as we are being mean to other people, and, and you know, kind of goes back to that classic, uh, as someone is yelling at their kid, don't you yell, you know, um, it's what, what's the, what are you modeling? So decades of research indicate that one of the biggest predictors of racial prejudice, for example, Um, and a failure to empathize with members of other groups is having little or no contact with people who aren't like you. And studies also suggest that schools boost empathy in students when they foster multiculturalism um, in in an inclusive, warm attitude that it fosters cultural diversity. Uh, A couple of studies, Lee uh, and Chang, and this is 2009-2011, this enhanced empathy is linked with increased happiness and scholastic achievement. So there, there is enough research to back up the fact that when kids are exposed to more uh, multicultural, different environments, different places, that then that leads to increased happiness and scholastic achievement because they do start to see how they can connect with others and what they do have more in common, not more of an isolation view, which then leads to a, maybe a, a less, um, a lack of empathy. Teaching empathy tip number four, foster cognitive empathy through literature and role playing. Why feeling someone else's pain isn't the entire story. So when we hear the word empathy, um, a lot of people do focus on that concept of emotional sharing. Again, that's which occurs when we experience feelings of distress as a result of observing stress in another individual. But uh, that comes with a cost, as we as noted kind of in that introduction. Emotion sharing can make us want to back away, especially when we encounter someone in pain or distress. And even if we resist this impulse to back away, our own emotions can distract us from accurately judging what a victim really needs. So just having this this affective empathy um, isn't enough. To be good helpers, we also need to have cognitive empathy, the ability to take another person's perspective, that perspective taking, and imagine what actions might make that person feel better. The process is more dispassionate and cerebral and less stressful and often leads to more accurate judgments. So let's get to a study. First, in brain scan studies, individuals who score high in this cognitive empathy tend to experience less stress reactivity when they witness distress in others. And they're actually better at responding in helpful ways. Now, so how do we foster this cognitive empathy? Fictional stories and real-life narratives offer excellent opportunities for teaching empathy and sharpening a child's perspective-taking skills. So what do characters think? What do they believe? What do they want? Uh, How do they feel? And how do we do it? When we actively discuss these questions, kids can learn a lot about the way other people's minds work. That's according to a study by Dunn. Uh, done in uh, early 2000, uh, 2001. In one experimental study, though, here, here we go. 110 school-age kids were enrolled in a reading program. Now, some students were randomly assigned to engage in conversations about the emotional content of the stories they read. Others were asked only to produce drawings about the stories. So after two months, the kids in the conversation group, the ones that were talking about the um, emotional content of the stories, showed greater advances in emotion comprehension theory of mind and empathy, and the positive outcomes remain stable for six months or more. That's according to a study Ornagi in 2014. 
Other research suggests that role-playing is useful. And man, I am a terrible role-player. In grad school, we often did role-playing. And and even in my office at times, I will try some role-playing. And I will say that it it works a lot of times where uh, I might say, okay, let's kind of put you through the paces in this. How would you communicate with your spouse or your kid? That sort of thing. But in an elaborate role-playing trial, researchers asked young, healthy medical students, to simulate the difficulties of old age. For example, students wore goggles covered with transparent tape to simulate the effects of cataracts, and they wore heavy rubber gloves to experience poor motor control. After the experiment, the students showed greater empathy toward the elderly. That's according to a study by Varkey in 2006. Okay, let's cover one more today. Teaching empathy tip number five, fostering cognitive empathy through compassion training. Sounds exciting, right? Um, Literature and role-playing can provide children with insights into other minds and other perspectives. But what about those feelings of personal distress, when we kind of feel it in our bones, when we feel bad, when we feel sad for somebody else? How do we, how do we keep that type of empathy from overwhelming us? Uh, research suggests that certain meditation practices, mindfulness, mindfulness meditation, and compassion meditation may be helpful. And this brought up uh, something for me as a therapist. There are often times where I deal with heavy things, whether I'm dealing with divorce, whether I'm dealing with suicide. And uh, there's just a lot of things that that sometimes I think when people will say, man, that must be hard, or do you take that home with you? And every now and again, when I step back and think, man, I really don't too much, I'll even think, what's wrong with me? You know, am I I a robot? Am I a psychopath? Uh, What's going on here? But, uh, but, you know, sometimes I just feel so blessed or fortunate with the, the, the training or maybe some of the things that have kind of led me to the point of where I am today that I didn't even necessarily realize that in all of this mindfulness meditation that I learned early in my practice, um, that that has kind of uh, been helpful along the way. And, and I'll kind of get to that a little bit more. For examples, in studies of compassion training, let me talk about that. Participants, what they do is they visualize their own past suffering and they relate it to feelings of warmth and care. So what that can mean at times, and it really is that kind of concept of gratitude we talked about a little bit before Thanksgiving, but uh, in, in a little bit of a different way. So sometimes there really is that um, just when you're kind of overwhelmed, when you have these feelings of personal distress, when you've kind of heard what's going on with someone else, that at times it's important to kind of sit back and, and just be grateful for what what you do have. And uh, trying to, and that's why I think it's really important to, and I've been doing this more of trying to, to keep a little bit of a, uh, keep some thoughts down every night of what I am truly grateful for. That, uh, that when you can kind of start from that place, the, what you're grateful for, and then at that point, you can even look at some of your own, then what they're talking about, this Klamiki study from 2014, then visualize some of your own past sufferings, but then relate it to feelings of warmth and care. What I believe is that then when you kind of relate it to, okay, but here are some things that are good. Here are some things that I'm grateful for. Then they say that to to maintain this focus, sometimes people repeat phrases like, may I be sheltered by compassion or may I be safe or may I be free from the suffering. I think if you are a spiritual person, this is where prayer comes into play. And, uh, And I'm a big proponent of prayer. Where at this point, then, you know, you can, you, you truly are grateful and thankful for even the challenges that you have and uh, just being grateful to be watched over, guided, that sort of thing. I feel like that kind of fits into this, um, fits into this uh, compassion, uh, compassion training. So a little bit more here, though. Um, participants then repeat this exercise, but with other individuals as the targets for compassion. So, you know, can I have compassion on others? May I be able to help others? May I be a tool in, uh, in, in the hands of healing others? 
They start to imagine a close loved one, and then maybe they extend their compassionate wishes to a series of others, a neutral person, a difficult person, humanity in general. Uh, again, if you are maybe more of a spiritual person, you can even see, you know, you can maybe see some of those things in there where it really is uh, starting to pray for others, um, even a difficult person, humanity in general, that it does kind of get you out of your own world, your own head, and kind of uh, it, it just nurtures that compassion. So for adults, a single day of training has been enough to yield differences in brain activity and behavior. A study done by Lieberg in 2011 showed that uh, compared with individuals who received a, some type of memory training, individuals trained in compassion were more likely to help a stranger during a course of a game. So I love that. So even just kind of nurturing this compassion, this prayer, this compassion training, that, that even doing that um, will, will actually help you develop this empathy. So also compared with participants trained in effective empathy, they showed less activity in parts of the brain associated with secondhand pain and distress. Yet brain regions linked with reward, love, and affiliation remained active. So the more of this compassion training that one does, um, less activity in the parts of secondhand pain and distress. Now, I think that's key. We're not trying to, to remove the the empathy piece, but that part that makes people feel bad and causes them to withdraw. So I think here's where the here's where this kind of makes more sense. Um, similar techniques have been used successfully with adolescents, and they can be adaptable for y- younger individuals. For preschoolers, researchers at the University of Wisconsin Madison developed and tested a 12 week classroom pro- uh, program called the Kindness Curriculum. Um, this was in 2015, I believe, was the study. Among other things, it features group lessons and attention to emotions in the self and others. Practical brainstorming sessions for helping others and exercises in showing gratitude. A randomized controlled study found the program to be effective for teaching empathy and preschool social skills. The researchers responsible for the kindness curriculum, do they are making that available uh, to the public for free. So if you Google that or I'll try to have a link for that, um, you can find out what that 12-week curriculum was. But I think the key there is that... Um, what, what people are doing is, is where they, as they are able to kind of be more, sit there with their emotions and then be able to turn those outward or turn those toward things that they are grateful for or having compassion toward others, then you're able to kind of sit there a little bit more with those feelings and emotions so that when you are presented with these situations of distress from another, instead of withdrawing, you lean in a little bit more. You maybe have a little bit more of that empathy. So what do we learn today? Um, we've learned that empathy is in fact extremely important. Um, we've learned that there are three different components to empathy, emotional sharing, which again, that occurs when we experience feelings of distress as a result of observing distress in another individual, um, empathetic concern, which is a second component of empathy, which is the motivation to care for individuals who are vulnerable and distressed. And, uh, the final one is perspective taking, which is the ability to consciously put oneself in the mind of another individual and imagine what that person is thinking or feeling. Um, to me, I think that's the one that, that most people think of when they think of, when they typically think of empathy. So, uh, while empathy has become more of a catch all that, um, that it is not only it does, there are different components to empathy, but that also we can do something about empathy. So I covered five of these, uh, these tips today. And I'm going to cover more in the future, but uh, just a quick summary of the five. Number one, provide children with the support they need to develop strong self-regulation skills. This is that concept of that while feeling someone's pain can be unpleasant, 
Uh, we really need to be more emotion coaches and acknowledging rather than dismissing someone's negative feelings. Again, I don't think that just applies to children, but teens and even our spouses as well. Um, empathy number, tip number two, seize everyday opportunities to model and induce uh, sympathetic feelings for other people. And this is that one that had the Dutch school age children that um, had you think more a little bit about what the girl was going through who needed to stay late at school. And once you kind of understood or, or rated her um about how sad she was, then people were willing to help whether it was their friend or not. Uh, teaching empathy tip number three was helping people discover what they have in common with other people, kind of stepping outside of your comfort zone a little bit. Number four is fostering cognitive empathy through literature and role-playing. Fictional stories, real-life narratives are excellent opportunities for teaching empathy and uh, sharpening a child's perspective-taking skills. What do the characters think? What do they believe? What do they want? How do they feel? And this was that study that uh, had people in a reading program, and some were assigned to randomly engage in conversations about the emotional content. Others just drew pictures about the stories. And after two months, the kids in the conversation group showed greater advances in emotion comprehension, theory of mind, empathy, and uh, the positive outcomes remained stable for quite some time. And teaching empathy tip number five, compassion training. So whether that is a mindfulness meditation, uh, compassion meditation, whether it's prayer, whatever that is, that uh, you can continue to foster that concept of empathy. Thank you so much for joining me today. There's another uh, five or six, I believe tips on teaching empathy that we're going to get to in a part two, a little bit down the road. And don't forget, if you shave parts of your body, leg, head, face, if you're male, female, um, stop by Eli's Extracts, E-L-I-S-E-X-T-R-A-C-T-S, did I spell that right, dot com? Use coupon code virtual couch, all one word, and you get 25% off your entire order to all of their organic um, shave creams, organic, uh, all natural, scented with essential oils. Uh, amazing. Shave my head again with uh, little Eli's Extracts today. And, uh, and don't forget to follow me on Twitter at uh, Tony Overbay or at Couch Virtual or Instagram at Virtual Couch. And um, also the, most of the videos of the interviews that I do are up on the Virtual Couch YouTube channel. So until next time, we'll see you again on the Virtual Couch. Compressed emotions flying past Our heads and out the other end The pressures of the daily grind It's wonderful Elastic waist and rubber ghost I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside the things that matter
Systems don't explode 